Well, I thought Janelle was fast. That was super fast. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Nate is the youth pastor here, if you don't know. Uh, there is a, a famous experiment that was... Hey, good morning, everybody. I should have said that. There's a famous experiment that was done back in 2007 where Joshua Bell, who is like a well-known can- uh, concert violinist, set up as a street musician in one of the subways in Washington, D.C., and played for a few hours. And uh, during that time, most people walked right on by him. Uh, They heard beautiful music, but they didn't associate it with anybody in particular, and and they didn't really even pay attention. And there's a whole video of it. You can watch it. It's not really that interesting other than it's beautiful violin music, and everybody's just walking past the guy. Uh, a, A lot of analysis was actually done uh, about that experiment concerning the state of art appreciation and busyness in our society. But what I found interesting is that seven years later, Bell did this experiment again. This time he joined with a street musician who was already there and he played a duet with him. And the second time around, because the, the first experiment had been made known, a lot more people stopped and watched him and began to appreciate what he was doing there. And then 15 years later, after the very first event, he did it again, this time with a few student musicians, and it was a completely different story. Everyone. It shut down the subway, actually. Everyone stopped to watch and pay attention and listen and take photos and get selfies, and the news showed up to report on it, and it was a really big deal. It all changed when people recognized and knew the one who was playing this music. Suddenly it all became a valuable and a wonderful experience. Today we're going to be continuing our study in in John's Gospel, and we're going to gain some insights about Jesus that will lead us along the way to grasping who He is and just how valuable He is to us. Uh, And if you've got a way of following along, if you'll go to John chapter 1, please. We're still reading what is considered to be the introduction. Uh, Steve, I'm sorry, this is really loud. It almost sounds like it's going to start feeding back. Thank you so much. Uh, We're still reading what is considered... Am I gone now? or (laughs) Is it like it's all or nothing, right? (laughs) You're going to complain. I'll take you out. Okay, that's cool. I get it. I I would do the same thing. Okay, we're still reading what's considered to be the introduction. This morning we're going to actually read what's considered the, the, the beginning of the narration proper. Uh, John opened with this beautiful poem, this hymn, uh, which has all sorts of clues about what it is he's going to be talking about in this whole narrative, but more importantly, clues about the identity of Jesus, who is going to be the focus of this entire story. This gospel is about Jesus. Last week, we read what I consider to be the most important verses of the Bible, that the Word, the Logos of God, who is God, became human and lived among us, made his home among us, revealing God's heart to us, not a heart of wrath or anger or vengeance, uh, disengaged from our plight in some way, but one of steadfast love, of faithfulness to his promise of redemption, who stepped into our mess, joined us in this to provide the means and way of escaping it. So we also read that, that the world meaning the human systems and societies at large, as well as God's own covenant people, didn't recognize and and rejected Jesus, kind of like Josh Bell playing a concert to oblivious commuters. 
But John tells us for those who believe him and accept him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And this is where John, the author, wants us to land. As we pointed out at the end of his gospel, in the second to the last chapter, he explains that he wrote this so that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who is divine, and find life by believing in him. So if the goal is to believe him and to accept him as Messiah of God, it stands to reason we've got to get to know him. We've got to learn to recognize him in this. So this is going to be a recurring theme in John's gospel as we go through it. And the technique that he uses is to tell a story about Jesus and then utilize that for a theological purpose. So he's going to tell stories, but as we pointed out before, they're different from the synoptic gospels. It's not going to be chronological stories or things like that. He's going to pull them from all over the place, and he's using them as a means of being able to construct a picture for us, a picture that he hopes is going to move us into a deeper experience with this Jesus that he's talking about. So the narrative begins by giving us John the Baptist's witness statement about Jesus. And there are some profound insights that we gain just by looking at his testimony as we begin. So if you're there in John chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 19. It says, This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? Now, that's actually a decent question if we're unfamiliar with the gospel story. Uh, if, if we don't know the other gospel accounts of, of Jesus' story, it's, imp- it's important for us to actually stop here and get on board with these uh, religious leaders on this question. Who are you? So we need to, to think about this for a minute. The man is called John. And he's known in the other Gospels as John the Baptizer. In Luke's Gospel, we learn that his parents were of the priestly lineage who had been unable to have children. And he was commissioned from birth to play this special role in in the appearance of God's kingdom in this world. And Luke's Gospel tells us that he was also living in the wilderness until the day that he made his public appearance. He had a strange attire. He was wearing camel hair uh, suits and, and eating locusts and honey. Now, the Bible doesn't state it, but in the wilderness at that time, there were a group of people called the Essenes. They, they were the ones who uh, were the, 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 the community that actually hid the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 60s. They were deeply devout. Uh, it was a sect there in Israel. They believed that the Messiah was ha- at hand, and they believed that the temple leadership was so corrupt that they had to withdraw from it. They no longer attended temple services or anything to do with all of that. In fact, they wouldn't even live within Jerusalem. They withdrew out into the wilderness to be part of their own uh, community in, in anticipation that Messiah was going to come and clean house and set up a new Israel. I think it's very likely that John the Baptist spent some time with these people. His message bears a lot of similarities with theirs, albeit the fact that he's not identified as one of them means that, that he was moving independently of them. He had his own message, he had his own ministry that he was going to fulfill. And it was effective because people were coming from everywhere. We know from the other gospel accounts and even from the historic accounts from Josephus, people were coming from everywhere to come and hear what John the Baptist had to say. And, and you know, we think about what this must have looked like. We know that in our own church culture right now, things that happen within different strains of the church can still you know, get a lot of attention, broad attention over things. For instance, right now, up in Kentucky at Asbury University, I'm sure you've heard about this, that there appears to be a genuine outpouring of, of 
God going on with the students and this prayer and worship service that broke out at the end of one of their normal chapel services that went on for weeks. And, you know, I think it's still going. I think they've restructured it a little bit, but it's still going on for, for as far as I know. And people have been traveling by the thousands to go and see this. I mean, it's causing the little town there in, uh, that, that houses this college to, you know, face the, the, the complexities of what to do with all these people that are flooding in there. And they're watching online. There's live broadcasts of it. And there are, at any given time, thousands of people watching this from all expressions of the church. This is not just Methodists paying attention to it. Everybody's looking at this, trying to see what's happening. Okay, so now let's transpose that sort of scene to first century Israel. So word starts circulating. There's a prophet who's out in the wilderness and he's announcing that the Messiah is here already. And and people are repenting and they're getting closer to God. And so, you know, it's, others are saying, well, hey, let's take a day trip out and he'll go hear this guy, see what he has to say. Maybe he's right. Maybe this is happening. That explains why all of a sudden the religious leadership is also sending people to investigate, right? I mean, that's happening with Asbury right now. There's plenty of critics that are looking at this, you know, uh, trying to, to to take it apart, but this just just gives us a little bit of a, a an insight of what's going on. It, you know, John assumes that we know all of these things in his story. I can't make that assumption, so I'm giving you a little background so we understand why he's he's setting this up this way. What this story is that's unfolding here. So we'll keep reading verse 20. So they asked him, "Who are you?" And he came out right out and he said, "Well, I'm not the Messiah." Well, then, who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we're expecting? Nope. Well, then, who are you? We need to answer those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I'm the voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. Then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you don't recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. This encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Okay, so... The investigating committee asks John the Baptist if he's the Messiah. You know, they got all the tables set up and he's got a microphone in front of him and the guys up there on the panel are asking him questions. Are you the Messiah? And he tap, tap, tap. No, I I am not. (laughs) And we get why they're asking if he's the Messiah. I mean, you know, everybody's expecting the Messiah, but then they ask if he's Elijah. And, you know, why is that? Well, that's because in Malachi chapter 4, the last book of our arrangement of the Old Testament, it's prophesied that Elijah will return right before Messiah arrives. Now, in Luke's gospel, Jesus makes it clear that John the Baptist did fulfill that uh, prophecy, but it was figurative. Uh, It wasn't literal. They're asking, are you literally John the Baptist here? And so he pulls out his driver's license and says, no, I'm John the Baptist, it says right here. And, and, And they ask if he's the prophet. And this is referring to Deuteronomy 18. Moses prophesied that God would send a prophet like himself one day to lead Israel. And for many, that was synonymous with the Messiah coming. I think that's how we're supposed to interpret it. But others saw this as a distinct prophet operating alongside of the Messiah. But I really want to focus on John the Baptist's answer here because, you know, they're asking him all these things. And these are big deal issues within Judaism at that time. 
He doesn't play it coy. He doesn't get all cryptic uh, about himself so as to maybe heighten the suspense about who he is, sustain some intrigue, get a few more followers to his ministry. No, he's straight up honest. In essence, he's saying, yeah, there is a Savior, there is a Messiah, and it ain't me. And, And this is where everything starts. I don't have the answers and the solution in myself. I need to be rescued along with everybody else here. And really, that's not just the starting point of our life with God. This is a continual touchstone on our journey as we're gaining our knowledge and and learning about who Jesus is. To know Jesus, we have to have a humble scriptural view of ourselves. John the Baptist wasn't trying to be self-deprecating. Having an honest, humble view of ourselves doesn't mean that we suddenly have a low sense of self-worth. I'm no good. I I can't do anything. No. It's just that he knew who he wasn't. But he also knew who he was. And he answered these questions by defining himself from Scripture. I'm the voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah wrote about. Now, that was his unique calling, and it was grounded in the Word. But all of us can know who we are based on what the Bible reveals to us. As we talked about last week, to be honest and humble about ourselves doesn't mean we take a low view of our self-worth. It means we take Scripture's view of who we are, that we're accepted and loved by God, that we're children of God whom He loves. We talked about that. We're friends of the king. These are things that the Bible says about us. We're agents of God. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. We share in Christ's work. We're the manifestation of his body on earth. I mean, that's awesome stuff. That's really awesome stuff. But best of all, none of it depends on us being awesome at all. We just have to be crazy enough to believe what the Bible has to say about us and know that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah, and we are not. I am loved by the Savior, but I am not the Savior. I don't have the answers in myself. I can only point myself and others to where the real hope is, and that is in Christ. One of our core values here at Eastgate is that we take God seriously, but we do not take ourselves seriously. We're a three and a half star church based on the t-shirt anyway. So we regularly acknowledge that we are frail and fallible human beings setting out to follow God's plans. And we don't do it very well. But this is our goal. This is our trajectory. This is the direction we move, stumbling along as we go. Remembering who we're not can be an important thing to do sometimes. Because, honestly, so much of the cultural impetus is moving in a different direction than this. is is trying to encourage us to look within ourselves, to find the answers we need. And we're often tempted to try and take matters of life into our own control, as though somehow we are the Savior. As though somehow, like, whatever it is that's happening in life through our relationships or our work or the things that are normally out of our control, we desperately try to take control as though we somehow have the power to affect the change and bring the hope that we need. That's one of the basic things we know, we need to know if we want to know Jesus more. He is not expecting us to be amazing in our own merits. 
He is who we look to and lean on in the issues of life. It might be good to ask ourselves the same question that the religious leaders were asking John the Baptist. We could take a look in the mirror and say, are you the Messiah? (laughs) Are you going to fix this? Are you going to save this situation? Let that remind ourselves that salvation and rescue, those are things that we cannot pull off. We have to trust that Jesus is going to do that in all manner of life. And in, in, as it touches anything, honestly, I've talked about this before, but if the church needs revival, it needs revival in knowing Jesus and representing Jesus to this world. One of the things that the evangelical church has done, especially as of late, is represent political positions, but not so much Jesus. And, and we need to get back to who it is that saved us. Because I'm telling you, there's not a politician out there that saved a single soul. Probably the opposite, I would say. Well, the promised land security guys, they were not happy with John the Baptist's answer, and they want to know why he's baptizing people if he's such a nobody. Now, baptism, that was not completely unknown. I've said before that it was an unknown practice. It actually was not unknown. But it was a ritual that was reserved for Gentiles who converted to Judaism something to demonstrate that they had crossed a threshold from being a Gentile to a Jewish person. So then all of a sudden we get the ramifications of what's happening here, what John the Baptist is doing and why this is upsetting these guys. These leaders are saying, you know, what's the, what's the threshold here? We're already adhering to Judaism. What are you trying to add to our religion? And to answer that, in verse 26, he says, right here in the crowd is someone you don't recognize. In other words, what's on the horizon is not a new religion. It's a person who is going to lead us into the home that God designed for us. So that takes us to verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one I was talking about when I said, A man is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I I didn't recognize him as the Messiah, but I've been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. And this is a great story, the way John is unfolding this. It's not just a simple historic narrative. There's depth to all of this. Okay, we're talking about the Spirit of God coming on Jesus and, and, and resting on him. That's, what's, that's what John describes, which is different. We know that this happened in the other gospel accounts at his baptism. But, but this is an anointing unlike anything that's happened in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God comes and rests in the Greek, meno, literally remaining continually. So this is huge. This is a different kind of anointing that we've seen in the scriptural records so far. It's conveying a messianic anointing. And when John the Baptist saw this, he knew that Jesus was the one that he'd been waiting for. So much in that to even think about and consider. So later when Jesus shows up again, John the Baptist makes the announcement to his followers, this is the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. And that's a phrase that has had scholars puzzling for like ever. Because while it's super familiar to us as New Testament Christians, you know, the Lamb of God, and we know in Revelation, Jesus is described as a lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that phrase is never used again anywhere in Scripture. Never appeared before, never appears anywhere else. So the puzzling part of it is what is this referring to? Uh, is this pointing to the Passover lamb or is it re- pointing towards the daily temple sacrifices for sin? I would say that scholars are unified in, 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 a, in agreement that in ancient Judaism, all lamb sacrifices were memorials of deliverance and forgiveness of sin. So whatever may still be hidden in the details uh, about all this, the main point is that Jesus as Messiah is a gift provided by God to take away sin. Why? Because that's the very condition that kept us from the presence of God. By him removing that, now we have a means of being reconciled into relationship. And so that prompted John the Baptist to make his distinction between what he's been doing and what Messiah is going to do. I've been, he says, I've been out here dunking you in water, but he's going to immerse you in the spirit of God. I can only change your outward condition from that of being dry to that of being wet. But he is going to change your life when you get close to him by accepting and believing in him. There's so much in this passage. We're just barely skimming what's here. But in keeping with this perspective this morning, wanting to know more of who Jesus is, I think we learn from what John the Baptist says here that we're going to know Jesus more when a renewed life displaces our need for religious ritual. That if we want to grow closer to Jesus, religious ritual alone is not going to suffice for that. It's It's about the ongoing changes that take place as we draw close to him, that we learn about him even through the changes that are taking place in our lives, in our character, in our walk with him. John the Baptist made it clear that his baptism, the ritual that he was performing, was only pointing the way towards the real thing that Jesus was bringing. We understand more who Jesus is by recognizing what he's doing. And he's not coming to set up more religion. He he didn't come to to establish a, a, a stricter code that could bring people closer to God. Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, And his resurrection from the grave has taken away our sins, all of them, past, present, and future, so that now we have clean access to God. Salvation isn't something we earn. There's not uh, enough rituals that we can do that will somehow award us the redemption that we're looking for. Religious rituals are never going to provide for us what it is that Christ has done and what it is that Christ is continuing to do. It all comes through Jesus. And our response is to believe it, to to rest in what it is that he's already done for us. And when we feel like we've fallen short, when we feel like we don't do this well or that we're failures or that maybe we just long for revival, like we're seeing happening, the temptation is always there to start redoubling our religious efforts. 
when what we're looking for is going to be found in what Jesus alone is going to provide for us. That revelation of God's love for us. It all comes back to that. To know Jesus, we have to understand. We have got to, no, I'm not going to say understand, but we've got to embrace all the possibilities that are present in God's great love for us, for all of us. It's not about the rituals we can perform. It's not how awesome we can be as we try to pull off this Christian thing. It's all about Jesus revealing to us the Father's heart, that God loves us. This isn't to say that, you know, rituals that we have within the church are don't have a place. I mean, you know, our time of, of, of singing worship songs or the communion table like we're going to be observing today are, are rituals, but they facilitate us in drawing close to Jesus, and that's all they are. So we keep them in their proper place. And this has been a constant struggle for the church during our long history to strike a balance and... and not place an undue emphasis on religious ritual and practice and lose sight of what God is really after, and that is changing our lives from the inside out. You know, the, the, one of the things that I experienced a lot growing up not only in the church but also in my time in the crazy church was how easy it is for us as communities of believers to begin shifting our emphasis. And it happens so subtly. We don't even recognize or realize that it's happening. And all of a sudden, little by little, we've got all of these rules and and ancillary rules that are associated with how it is that we're practicing our faith or even how we attend to this table that we're going to attend to today. I, I remember back when Eastgate first started, one of the big, you know, hullabaloos was, well, we just, you know, we're not... We're not being serious enough when we do this. You know, there's a time when everybody should be feeling guilty and terrible about themselves. And everybody seems happy and this doesn't seem right. And, 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 and it goes back though to this whole idea. Well, you know, we've got these things that we've got to check off when it comes to this. None of those things are scriptural. None of those expectations. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves, but that's not saying that you can't take the communion, he's just saying, examine yourself. Remember who you really are. Kind of like what we're saying today. This is not about us trying to be as awesome as we can be. It's about us recognizing and believing that Jesus has provided what we need. If anybody examines themselves and says, hey, man, I'm pretty great. I actually got this together. Well, then what do you need communion for? What do you need any of this for? All of us should be examining ourselves and recognizing we fall short. And boy, do we need this table. Boy, do we need this reminder that God loves us and he's made a way for us. Eugene Peterson says that God doesn't impose his values on us as an external code, but he grows flowers and fruits from within. That's why we never want to reduce our Christian experience to mere moralism. We don't want to define our Christianity as a series of duties that we check off that, well, I've done this and I've done that and so I must be okay. We want to understand our relationship with Christ as we grow to know him. This is a journey. This is a developing relationship that fundamentally changes us from the inside out. And it's a journey, I believe, that we never complete this side, on this side of our existence. I mean, 
you know, I, again, I go back to my formative years and this expectation that one day I was going to wake up and I was going to have this whole Christian thing wired. You know, one day I'll be past all of these things and I won't be tempted by this or I won't be angry about that or whatever. That is not a reality. That That's a mythical creature, that good Christian out there. They don't exist. There's just us. And, and, and you know, the, this church and all of the churches are full of us. People just like us, who don't have our act together, who so desperately need a Savior. And if we can get past pretending like we don't need Him, if we can get past all of the things that we do to posture and present ourselves, usually just to each other, just to try to make sure that each other feels like we got our act together and we're, you know, a little bit above you, then, then that's usually what it's about. But John, John, in his testimony, wants to make it clear. We're not the Savior. <laughs> There's no human being that's the Savior. He alone. And he is the Lamb of God who's going to take away that sin. Not our rituals, not our things that we're able to do. We can do these rituals as a means of demonstrating what the reality is behind it. And that's it. That's, that's what we want. So let's hear John's testimony Let's learn about Jesus so that we can know him better. And in knowing him, let's allow him to transform us from the inside out. Right? I meant to say right on, but I just said right. This microphone's throwing me. I'm sorry. Um, so, okay, so with all of this talk about ritual, um, we are now going to, this morning, <laughs> on the last Sunday of the month, going to observe the ritual of communion. <laughs> but we'll remember, as we do this, that it's only symbolic of the reality that has already taken place in our hearts and our lives because of what Jesus has done, right? It's it's not the means of making the changes. The changes are already taking place and underway in our lives because of Jesus. All that we're doing here is just reminding ourselves. We're reminding ourselves of who we are and what this means. Something that, as we said, can facilitate us in, in drawing closer to Jesus. So, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. And as best as we can put together, he was celebrating the Passover uh, ceremony, which was a, a meal, a covenant meal that the Jewish people would celebrate together to remind themselves of who they are, who they belong to, what it is that God has done in forming them together as a community. Well, Jesus, in, in taking us through a new exodus, did something similar. He took the Passover meal and he repurposed it. He took elements from it to show what it is that God was doing, how God was providing a way for us to, like the ancient Israelites did, escape slavery and escape death. So in the original story of the Passover, the Passover lamb would have been sacrificed and the blood of that lamb was placed over the doorposts of the house. And in the final judgment that was coming through on Egypt, that of the death of the firstborn, those who were, were protected by the blood were preserved from facing that end. And, and, and in that, they were released from slavery. Uh, the Pharaoh let them go. All of that was symbolic of what was to come what it is that God had in mind in bringing the Savior. It was so much bigger than just a single nation. It was all the nations of the world, all the people of the world, who had lived as we had lived in the bondage to sin, in the corruption of this fallen place. 
And Jesus, through his death, and again, I don't understand the mechanics of it, but somehow, through his death, provided for us the atonement we need. So that by his death, we now escape the consequence of our sins, the chief consequence being death. And we are now released from that bondage and brought back into uh, a, a reconciled fellowship with God. We now belong to God's family. That's what this is all about. So when we take this meal together, we're declaring, as Paul said, the Lord's death until he returns. We're declaring in taking this meal that God has forgiven us, God has redeemed us through Christ's sacrifice, that we now belong to the family of God. We're not all alone in this world kicking through the difficulties of it, but we now belong to this huge, global, multinational, multicultural family that God has drawn together as his own. We take our place in this long line of the redeemed. And that's what this this meal is all about. And it's important that we do it together like this because it reminds us of of who we are and 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 who we belong to and where it is that we're going. So, I'm going to pray over the elements here. There's um baskets of gluten-free bread on both tables if you have any food allergies, those may be the ones you want. Otherwise, we'll Oh, thank you, Shirley. You've been waiting on me all this time. <laughs> so, uh, Father, we just thank you for what it is that you've provided for us. And we, we count this now. We count this bread as emblematic of your body that went to the cross on our behalf. You bore in your body, according to Isaiah 53 and 1 Peter, you, you bore in your body the consequence of our sin. And by your wounds, we're now healed. The great displacement. We count this bread as emblematic of what it is you've done for us. Father, we count this cup as symbolic of your blood. That you told us now provides us a new covenant. A new way in which we relate to God. It's no longer based on our ability to perform. But it's all based on your love for us. For you so loved the world, you gave your one and only Son, that whoever would believe on you, we would have eternal life. For you did not send your Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And so we take our place with the saved ones today, Father. And we just ask you to meet with us here in the midst of this. Awaken our hearts to who you are. And to what it, mean, what it means to us to be followers of you. Guide us and lead us into this, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I think the band's going to play some music, so feel free to come on up. Uh, table at the front, table at the back. Let's take the communion together, and then we'll meet back and close with a worship song.
is our prayer, Lord. We do. We want to make room. And we struggle with that. You know we do, Lord. You know who we are. You know how we're made up. You know all the things that factor into every personality that's here. And you know how difficult it is for us to let go of our own attempts at trying to arrange our lives around something meaningful and valuable. Father, help us to let go. Right now, Father, I just pray that each of us here has a willingness and a desire to know you more, to know Jesus more, to find our hope and our rest in what it is that he's provided for us. Lord, so often our knuckles are bleeding from trying to earn something from you to make sense of our lives when you've done it all for us. Help us to rest in the only blood that can make a difference. The sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. Awaken us to that reality, Lord, as you're moving in this earth, as you're drawing close to your church. We make room for you. Awaken us, Lord God, to your goodness and your grace. The power of your love is the power that overcomes this world. So draw us and lead us into that, into the deep abyss of your love. I pray that for us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, well, let's uh, pray this prayer all together. It's a good way to conclude today. If you need prayer for anything, feel free to come on up and We'd love to pray with you, see what God will do. But make a commitment in your heart, in your mind. Let's draw close to Him. He, Jesus, is the means by which we're going to find all the things we're looking for in life. Those things that pertain to real life, to meaning and value. But let's pray this together. Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do your will here like it's done in heaven. Provide for our daily needs. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. We confess you're in charge. You're our provider. Our lives are in your hands. Yes and amen. Go in peace, you children of God.